0: This is the Mile High Magnum Dak Draper, and you're listening to Wrestling with Jonner's Podcast.
1: What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Wrestling with Jonas. This is, uh, I want to welcome you all to a very special episode. Uh, every single episode of Wrestling with Jonas is special, of course, but this is our 150th episode of Wrestling with Jonas. And for an extra special episode, such as our 150th show, it's only fitting to have an extra special guest. For this special occasion, now uh, please can I introduce to you, uh, current Ring of Honor star and the 2019 Top Prospects Tournament winner, the Mile High Magnum, Dak Draper. So, uh, Dak, brilliant to have you on the Wrestling
0: with Honors podcast, my friend. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. I hit the gym really hard today. Ate some mistakes, so business as usual.
1: I tell you what, Zach. It's really, really warm over here in the UK, and you're probably used to the temperature over there in the States. But we've had temperature over here in, in the 30s, uh, mid 30s, and as uh, Brits, we don't cope too well with the, with the warm weather. What's it like over there? What's summertime like over there for you on the East Coast?
0: Well, it was really hot out. I don't know the temperatures in uh, what is it centigrade. Um, I uh, we were like up in like the 90s, uh, which would be 90s Fahrenheit. And uh, then we had a tropical storm blow through and our power was out for a couple hours and uh, it's actually cooled things off a lot. It's like 70 degrees. It's a little cloudy, though, which sucks because I love going to the pool with quarantine. uh, One of the only things that I'll do because I don't want to be around a lot of people is I'll go to our pool because they like keep people separate and stuff. Yeah. and i have lost that opportunity this week because it's been so cloudy and rainy so i'm pretty uh, pissed off about
1: it we've had temperatures up in the kind of uh, the 30s and mid 30s centigrade and i think that's around about 80 kind of 80 plus fahrenheit so okay pretty yeah that's an even steamy yeah, and I was speaking to uh, Mike Seidel a couple of weeks ago, and he said it was it was um, into the forties centigrade. so I think I was probably touching nearly a hundred Fahrenheit where you got where he, where he was anyway. So very very warm conditions. This this summer is going to be a steamer for sure. But uh, let's get mm-hmm. into some of the questions then, because it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. It really really is great a special occasion. On. Yeah, 150th episode. We've worked hard to get here. Um, what a great guest to have on our special episode. But I mean, 2019 uh, it, 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 to a lot of people from. You know, looking from the outside, in 2019 was a great year for you, a real breakout year for you. 2020 promised to be an even better year, though, Zach, to be honest with you, especially after winning the tournament last September, the top prospect tournament. Um, you've been involved in some of the high profile matches, including your match with Dragon Lee, I think that was in February. But the uh, last that was a sort of t- t- show, that's right, uh, that was uh, for the TV title. We're going to get into all of that, but I mean, the last. five, five, six plus months of not being able to wrestle. That that must be somewhat frustrating for you, quite tough on you. I mean, you're a natural athlete, you're a natural competitor. Um, Just when your Ring of Honor career was really starting to take off, but how how have you been feeling uh, over the last uh, five or six months? And how have you been coping with not being able to get in the ring and wrestle?
0: So luckily for me, I kind of went through something like this a year ago. So when I first signed with Ring of Honor, we, I wasn't allowed to wrestle independent matches anymore and uh, so I didn't wrestle for like six months because I was part of the ring of honor dojo system where they started a developmental system and so I spent six months not re- all, all my matches were practice matches in a warehouse I wasn't uh, in front of a crowd at all and then at least when that was happening all my friends were still allowed to have matches and so I'm watching everyone else wrestle and then I'm just sitting in the back I'm not I'm not getting to do anything it's like the kid riding the bench i hated it yeah. so much i've never been the guy on the bench and so i hated that so much so i was kind of prepared for it where this time when it struck i was like okay i need to develop an action plan i need to make progress so i've really poured myself into fitness and uh just trying to like come back as good as i possibly can be
1: yeah I mean, let's talk a bit about your fitness thing because you're a big guy i mean you're all of what six foot five 240 250 pounds your weight right about there now. yeah so probably i mean you, you've got a, a, a great look when you're in the ring a fantastic physique what you've goes got great into
0: eyesight.
1: Ma- ah well indeed indeed it's, it's <laughs> a hard not to spot that when you're in the ring and you're uh you're almost speedos to be honest with you with what you wear uh, but ha- what goes into maintaining that that look both from a fitness standpoint and from a, a nutrition standpoint what goes into keeping the mile high magnum at its peak physical condition 24 7 then.
0: So it's definitely two hours in the weight room a day, six days a week, two hours in the weight room, and then thirty minutes a day of some kind of cardio. So some like today, I did legs and so if I do leg if I do legs, I don't like to do anything where I'm like running or on a treadmill or a stairmaster. So I had this big mace. I have some videos online too of yeah. me discovering using the mace (laughs) and uh, pushing (laughs) out of the comfort zone where I push myself out of my comfort zone. And so today for like the last 20 minutes of my workout, I was doing all kinds of stuff where I'm swinging this mace around like it's a big battle axe and stuff. And it got my heart rate into that fat burning zone, which is above 120 beats per minute. And I try and spend some time there at least burning some fat every day. And uh, it's just a lot of time. And then Nutrition is the, the big part. Cause if I'm not in the gym, I'm cooking. And so I'll typically eat close to six meals a day. It's chicken and rice, turkey and rice. I'll have, luckily I'm so lean naturally. I can eat a lot of carbs so I can keep the carbs pretty high, but, uh, moderate carbs, high protein, low fat. And, uh, it's Groundhog Day. It seems like the same thing, the same food out of Tupperwares every day. And at this point, it's like, you're not even eating for taste. You're just eating for fuel.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, just switching subject slightly, is there any news on when the Ring of Honor Dojo might be reopening for training sessions? I'm guessing that, you know, it is not uh, terribly soon, but have you heard anything about when the training might commence for the Dojo uh, students in particular?
0: I don't think, I have no idea. It's uh, no the big thing with ring of honor is like they want safety to be the number one priority. So yeah, I have no idea when those guys are going to be back training at the dojo. Um, Yeah. It's uh, it's definitely something that, uh, yeah, that guys are chomping at the bit for, I've talked to some guys that are still in the dojo system and they, uh, they really want to get back in because they, they feel like they're super stagnant because like a lot of them, haven't gotten opportunities with Ring of Honor yet. They're still trying to get see get on the radar, and so when you can't even be seen in that capacity, then yeah. I understand it though, because I I've kind of felt like you're always trying to climb and uh, be seen more. So
1: yeah, I understand but, yeah, their
0: frustrations.
1: Indeed, indeed. I think uh, every wrestler out there is frustrated and can't wait to hit the ring. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it, over here in the UK, we're in the same situation. Uh, I don't think there's, uh, there's any wrestling promotions, no independent promotions over here in the UK that have opened their doors yet. I think one or two are planning for uh, kind of like Halloween shows around the end of October, but that's still a little way off. So we'll see if that goes ahead. And I think they're all planning kind of outdoor venues as well to be a bit safer. But uh, oh, that's pretty let, cool. Let's talk a bit about your your sporting background because you've always been uh, very naturally sporty and very naturally athletic. Am I right in thinking that you were a very talented uh, amateur wrestler um, in high school and possibly college and, and football player as well? Tell us a bit about that.
0: Yeah, so it's funny. I got into amateur wrestling because my mom hated me watching Monday Night Raw on TV when I was a kid. And so in order to watch Monday Night Raw, I had to go to wrestling practice at school and I hated it. Like I loved the wrestling part but I hated the warmups. I hated any sort of running. And so in wrestling, there's so much more in amateur wrestling. There's so much more running than you would think. And so I always hated the running and I would try and hide in the bathrooms and the coach would come find me and make me run. But I ended up getting good at it and was a star in high school, was a star football player in high school also. And then, uh, wrestled in college. And then at the uh, national tournament, my senior year, right after I had my last amateur match ever, I Lost the match that would have made me an All American. Oh. I'm crying, I'm sitting in the stands, I have a towel over my head, and I hear this voice. It's like, Is that Sammy Dale? And it was this Jerry Briscoe, who uh, he's a WWE Hall of Famer, wrestling yeah. legend. Uh, I recognized him from when I was a kid, seeing him uh, on WWE TV with uh, Pat Patterson as Vince McMahon. One of stooges. the stooges, that's right. And he's a scout. For, uh, he was a scout. He's, I think he still is a scout for WWE, but he offered me a tryout and uh, they flew me down to Tampa. And I tried out and uh, didn't get signed from that tryout, but realized that wrestling could be an opportunity and uh, kind of took it from there. But uh, yeah, my. Uh, so
1: how, how old would you have been at this point when you when you were first kind of uh, scouted by Gerald Briscoe then?
0: I was uh, 23. Right. I was, okay. Was my senior year in college. So I just <laughs> turned 23.
1: And, yeah. Uh, uh, was it amateur wrestling or or, or football that was your, your passion then? What what would you have liked to have gone uh, kind of more serious in if you could? So
0: I I didn't play football in college. I just amateur wrestled. I played football in high school. I was a better football player than wrestler in high school. Right. But okay. I just really liked being in charge of my own destiny. I didn't like having to depend on a team for something. I didn't like to have to depend on other people to come through with their end of the bargain. I liked it to be if I win, it's all me, and the few times that I lost, it was all me, and uh, I really liked that the accountability of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, yeah. yeah, that's, what, and, me, and, that's so, what made me choose it.
1: No, that's really cool. And, and um, you said that you weren't uh, you had a trial when you were 23, but you weren't taken on straight away. Um, but um, well, when were you kind of giving the call to, I mean, were you given a second trial? How, how did that process work? So how did you work your way from amateur wrestling and and football to, you know, to the square circle? Talk us about that process and that transition for you.
0: So the, uh, the way that I, they flew me down to Tampa. This is when it was FCW, Florida championship wrestling. And uh, it was just like, you were in FCW for a week. It's not like the tryouts are now where it's like boot camp style and, now, the way the tryouts are, you don't see meet very many of the wrestlers or anything. This is like we were just part of the group for a week, and I didn't know anything. Like, I was horrible. The only thing I did well was I cut a good promo. And by a good promo, I mean it was the least horrific of everyone else that was trying out. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought that they were going to sign me because of it, and I got this big head about it. And they said they'd be in contact in a month. And then a month later, I was crushed when they told me that I wasn't signed. I was living in – I went to college in uh, the state of Nebraska. And uh, I was living in Nebraska in this tiny town. And they told me they weren't going to sign me, but they said, I think you could do something in wrestling, but you have to get some training first. And there's a school 300 miles away. If you go to this school, like, that would be a good step. So by the end of the week, I'd moved to Denver, Colorado. I grew up in Colorado. Yeah. But I'd moved back to Colorado to join this wrestling school and uh, through – it was a little topsy turvy. I uh, about nine months later, I got uh, another tryout, and uh, halfway through, they pulled me aside, and they were like, "Yeah, we're going to make you an offer."
1: Yeah, and so uh, you mentioned. I, so, sorry, Sam, you, uh, oh, you you mentioned that uh, when you first when when you went to your first trial, it was FCW. Um, pretty soon after, it must have turned to NXT. I mean, because you were there, um, kind of sure. during the NXT early years, weren't you?
0: Yes. Yeah, so the way that it worked for me. Uh, It was still called FCW for my second tryout. The week before I reported, I got signed and a few months later I reported. The week before I reported everything changed from FCW to NXT. So I was very fortunate. Um, But the first year we were still in the FCW building. We were still in Tampa. The WWE Performance Center hadn't opened yet. So I was signed for two years and the change in the system, the change in NXT that I experienced was astounding. We went from There was a show where I wrestled against the Wyatt family and had, I think 17 people in the crowd. And then that was when I was very new there. And probably the the last three months I was there, not a single show didn't sell out. It was just amazing. Like they, uh, And that's when they started the WWE Network while I was there, like all the live specials and all that. NXT went from just being like, oh, this thing that happens in Florida where some of the guys might get called up to being like, oh, this is a brand. And so that was kind of cool to experience and to be a part of. And uh, it ended, I'm happy that I was released when I was, just for my own personal growth. But uh, it was a great experience. I learned so much, like, Learning the basics, uh, learning the basics from some of those coaches and the fundamentals that they put down. It has helped me immensely in my career.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if you, I mean, I think you touched on it there, but if you look at the crop of amazing talent that were coming through at the time as well, you mentioned, you know, Eric Rowan, Luke Harper, Bray Wyatt, the, the Wyatt family, they were all coming through at the same time. Other names that were around at, at that time, you had uh, Dax Harwood, um, part of the, the revival, uh, FTR, of yep. course, Big E, Pat, Cassius Ono Trent Bretta, Baron Corbin, uh, Madman, Sawyer Fulton, uh, and so many others. It, it was, Quite a fantastic time around, I think it was probably around 2012, 2013, when a lot of these and when yourself were kind of breaking in through the NXT system. So, a a pretty amazing time. Uh, Did did you realize how special kind of that crop of talent was at the time then, Dak?
0: Never did. Well, Well, I shouldn't say never did. You realize how good all the guys are that you're with. But I never really took the time to be present and to appreciate it. Because when you're there, you're always, you want to do so well, I think. That mm-hmm. you're always either analyzing what's going on. You can never just be like, wow, I'm, I get to work with the best wrestlers in the world, with some of the best wrestlers in the world right now. And uh, instead, I was, I'm always thinking about like, oh, well, they didn't want me to do this drill. What does that mean? And uh, you're always kind of work, job scared and worried about where you stand. And I really yeah. think that like, I think that I needed to be released to be able to just take a breath and relax. Because at that point, I was so new when I got signed that I had never had fun wrestling yet. I'd just been nervous. And uh, it was so awesome to be immersed with those great wrestlers though, because I was talking to Chris Hero yesterday. I asked him questions about wrestling all the time. And uh, I rode with uh, Dax Harwood for over a year. And just the stuff that he taught me, just talking about how you put a match together in the car. And uh, just like the role models that you have there, your peers that like rub off on you is, uh, it was like, it was an education that you couldn't, uh, that you couldn't get anywhere else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's let's uh, touch on that a bit further because you mentioned Chris Hero, and he is a legend of the sport and a true genius at what he does. And Dax Harwood, and many of the other names that we mentioned already, but you, you a lot of them came from the Indies. A lot of them came from a pro wrestling background, so a lot of them were familiar. They knew the ropes. They, you know, were just fine tuning, I suppose, and looking to make a bigger name for themselves. You didn't come from pro wrestling. You didn't come from the Indies. You came from amateur wrestling and, and football. So. Did you feel that you had to work harder to maybe fill the gaps um, or to maybe catch up with some of the others? Or did you feel that you had other talents that maybe kind of uh, outshone others in other ways because of your sporting background? How did that work?
0: I think uh, I think you really need the biggest thing is you can't if you come from a college sport or a professional sport. I think you need to realize that, like, you just have to relax to wrestle. If you if you can't relax, if you can't be comfortable, then you're always going to be so tense, and it's never going to come across. It's never going to be authentic. You, Billy Gunn told me if you're not having fun, the crowd's going to sense it, and they're not going to have fun. And it's so true. They, uh, because I feel like I, I go from being I went from being so hardwired to amateur wrestling. It's so intense, and you're always you're it's everything is so gritty, and you're just butting heads all the time. To you have to work with someone. You have to be you have to uh, be able to almost be a dance partner. You have to, if they zig, you have to zig, you can't zag. Yeah. And so I thought that it was, uh, I thought it was uh, more of a detriment to not have very much professional wrestling experience going in because there are also things that are, when they're new to you and they're not new to other people, They, other people learn that by experience. So Chris Hero and uh, Sami Zayn and uh, Dax Harwood, those guys, they all had experienced making mistakes and then they had learned from it that way, which is way different than a coach telling you, hey, don't do this because this will happen. You haven't experienced it. You've just been told it. And so uh, I think I was excited, actually, when I got released because I listened to Hero and I would listened to Sami Zayn, hearing them talk about the indies and times that they had messed up and not gotten in trouble for it. Because who's going to yell at you? The promoter? Like, yeah. that that's nothing compared to having – having wwe officials yell at you so uh it uh i was really happy to be able to relax and to have fun wrestling and to make it something that i enjoyed so yeah i did i do think it was uh, a detriment yeah
1: but uh, I mean, sticking with your kind of natural athleticism, you could say. Now, I've seen a lot of your matches and one thing that really, really stands out is that, I mean, w- you're a big guy, you know, six foot five, 250 pounds. Now, naturally guys of that size are great with power moves. Now you do with the power moves, but you're also very athletic as well. I mean, you, you know, you do moves off the top rope. You, you kind of bounce up onto the top rope to do your moves. Yeah. You do the kip ups. Uh, you do kind of a lot of moves that's not naturally natural for a six foot five, 250 pound guy but when did you start incorporating the more athletic side into your kind of power based uh, repertoire
0: the day i got released, the day after i got released the day i got released i got very drunk falling down drunk at a bar and chris hero picked me up and took me home the very next day he called me and he's like you're not drinking today we're going to go to this wrestling school we're going to go to this gym that has a wrestling ring and we're going to work on some on a move set for you and so we went there and I started doing all this stuff that I had never done in NXT. And he was like, why didn't you do this in NXT? And I was like, I, I was scared to, they, they told me to do, to follow this formula. And uh, I started doing the athletic stuff and it just, it, be, it was so fun to do. And it started to get good reactions when I did it in front of a crowd. And so it started with that little run up the ropes with the little, where I bounce onto yeah. the top rope. It started with that. And then uh, it just kind of carried from there. And There have definitely been times when I've gone too far with it. Uh, once, I tried to jump from from being in the ring to the top rope without the little run up the ropes and just slipped on the ropes and <laughs> fell out of the ring, which was uh, awesome, <laughs> very painful. But uh, I don't know. It's I think a lot of it also comes from my freshman year in college. I cut. I lost forty six pounds to be on varsity. I went from two thirty to one eighty four in a very short period. But being a big being a big guy that all of a sudden was a medium-sized guy. I was just really skinny. I had to wrestle guys that were so much more agile than me and so much faster than me. So you have to adapt. And so I think I adapted. I became a lot a lot more athletic that year. And so I think I got to be a light guy for like six months. And I kept a little bit of agility from that. Yeah. No, so if you want to be agile, lose a lot of weight for a while.
1: Yeah, yeah, but uh, I mean, for anybody that needs to see uh, some Dak uh, Draper matches, then I mean, check out the Lucha Lee brand laughs uh, YouTube channel. And I think you've got your own YouTube uh, page as well, haven't you, Dak?
0: Yeah, I do. It has a lot of old matches. Uh, You'll probably see a lot of Sammy Six Guns matches, which is what the first name I went by after I was released from uh, NXT. And uh, yeah, you'll see a lot of old matches. You'll see a lot of matches where I was definitely trying stuff out where I was really discovering who I was and trying to like, and going through the process of becoming who I am now.
1: Indeed. indeed. Our friends over at Hope Spot Clothing are offering listeners to the Wrestling Majolas podcast, 10% discount off of all of their t-shirts and merchandise. Simply use the code WWJPOD. That's WWJPOD. HopeSpot Clothing are a charity label with over 50% of all profits going to a variety of good causes. Go to the website www.hopespotcc.com. That's hopespotcc.com and take advantage of their great discount now. Just a couple more questions uh, still sticking around NXT, if that's okay. Now, I understand that that you were lucky enough to have many great trainers as part of the NXT developmental system, but uh, uh, Nick Dinsmore was your kind of main guy, wasn't he? I think he was was the trainer that you bonded with the most and probably worked with you the most. Now, tell us about, uh, I mean, Nick Dinsmore, for those that aren't aware, might be familiar with his uh, Eugene character in WWE, of course. But, um, you know, Nick was quite a crucial part of your development during those years in NXT, wasn't he? Tell us. uh, why Nick was such an important part of your time in NXT
0: Nick was so honest with us when he came in I was upset that I was in his class because I the classes were tiered so they had different levels and Nick's first month as a trainer I was coming off of an injury coming back to the ring and he was teaching the beginner's class and I had been there for probably eight months and I was in the beginner's class and I had been in higher classes before, like every month it changes. And so I was pissed. And uh, it was the best thing that's probably ever happened for me as a wrestler because he just slowed everything down that I did. And he really focuses on footwork. He really focuses on your fundamentals. He'll tell you, he said that he couldn't comfortably throw a punch in a match for 10 years. So he focused on everything else to make it that much better. And uh, he was so big on just like, your footwork has to be perfect. Your bumps, they have to be perfect. Uh, the way that you do things, uh, it was just everything was through experience. He didn't want you to just hear something. He'd be like, all right, let's lock up and do this. And he would get in there and wrestle around with us. The first day, he had his wrestling boots on, and I had never had a coach show up with their wrestling boots on. And uh, also, he was he was one of the boys. Like, he would, uh, yeah. at the end of practice, he'd be like, all right, he'd bring us all in. and he'd go, all right, what's the stooge report? And it was just kind of like... Tell, like he wants to tell him a funny story or something it was just always uh he was one of those guys who he was more i look at it almost like he was a coach but he carried himself more just like an extreme veteran where he's been there and he talked to me like we could be wrestling on the same show like he knew more but it wasn't he never talked down to you he talked to you eye to eye and i just i really respected that and he organically could get a lot out of you and i didn't even notice how much better i had gotten in that month at the end of the month, they bumped me up to the next class up. And the first guy I went with was Buddy Murphy, who I think might have been the last guy I went with before I got hurt. And afterwards, we just did like a simple drill. He goes, you've gotten, he's like, mate, you've gotten so much better. It was, uh, and I, I don't know, it was, it's kind of cool when you don't think that you're progressing like that. And then someone just calls it out immediately that uh, that Dinsmore could have that effect. And I don't think I realized how good of a coach Dinsmore was until I was out of his class. And I can see how much I would progressed from when I'd been in the higher classes before, yeah. which is, I guess, what a great coach does. They make you better without you even realizing it
1: indeed yeah and then did you have much interaction while you were there with either Triple H or Dusty Rhodes now everybody's got a Dusty Rhodes story and, and I know that um, there's so many fun stories of his promo classes where Dusty would you know kind of uh, help or interact with the talent as they were trying to work their way through promo classes um, but uh, did you receive any kind of feedback from Hunter or any of the, the officials there or have any interaction with Dusty you got any funny stories from uh, those that, those times uh, yeah, backstage with The nxt then duck
0: so dusty was such a treat and uh i wish that i knew i wish i had been a little bit more experienced to be around dusty because there's so much stuff that just went over my head or things he says or things that he said that i think about now that i'm like oh my god that makes so much sense but at the time it just was like he was speaking a different language but one of my favorite things is uh this is when i was working closely with dinsmore he uh we were talk- doing this wild man character where I was the wild man Travis Tyler and I believed in all these conspiracy theories and I talked about my bunker that I had and uh, and I was always wearing camo I had long hair and a beard and uh, I was talking about getting like a uh, like a camouflage suit to wear around. Dinsmore told Dusty that I was going to buy a full on like tree costume <laughs> and uh, so I cut my promo that week and I don't know this and Dusty goes that was great but. Uh, what about this tree? And I was like, What do you mean? He's like, I heard that you're going to Bass Pro Shops and you're gonna buy a giant tree costume. <laughs> and I was like, uh, No, I'm thinking about getting this camo suit. And before I could even explain myself, he goes, We put all this work into a character. And you want to walk around dressed like a Christmas tree. <laughs> I'm not even going to try and do a bad dusty impression because mine is so bad. I'm not even going to try to do I it. I was bad. waiting
1: for it. I was waiting for it, but no, that's fine.
0: Like, You're going to go to a you shop. Go You're going to walk around like a damn Christmas tree and I swear. <laughs>
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. It was,
0: uh, and I'm just sitting up there stammering like, oh God, oh God. It was, it was pretty funny. So. That was a little rip from Dinsmore there. It was, it was good. Um, and then Triple H, I was in Triple H's workout DVD. That uh, it was the uh, Triple H Power Series DVD. I was in the back. I was uh, one of the guys working out in that. And uh, that was just, that was really cool to see how busy Triple H is and how he keeps his priorities. Where it's like, even if he's gone all day, he'll he'll drink a giant espresso to get through his to get a workout in before he goes yeah. to bed. Like he really like he knows what's valuable to him and he and he goes after it. It's uh it's impressive to see somebody manage their time as well as Triple H.
1: He's a workhorse. I mean you hear stories of him, you know, being up at five AM, working all day and then do the workout with Stephanie at midnight. And then you know they've got they've got children, they've got a family, but uh, you know their their professional careers is just mind blowing to be honest with you. The way they handle it, but it's, uh, very impressive. Uh, thank you very much for, for the Dusty story there, and uh, not a bad impression, not a bad impression. But uh, there we go. So for any of my listeners uh, that aren't aware, and you mentioned at the top of the podcast, you are a Colorado native, uh, originally from Denver. Now, uh, if any of my listeners have been living under a rock, or unless they've been living under a rock, many of my recent Interviews have included uh, many of the Denver based talent from Lucha Libre and Laughs, including Anaya, Mike Seidel, Nick Gossett, of course, the founder and promoter of Lucha Libre and Laughs, and of course, Royce Isaacs. Now being a Denver native after your WWE or NXT career, you kind of headed back to Denver, didn't you? Um, but uh, how did that relationship between yourself and Triple L, Lucha Libre and Laughs begin? I mean, uh, was it a company that you were aware of while you are in NXT, and how did you kind of get that invite to start with them?
0: So uh, moving back to Denver was a horrible decision on my part. Uh, it's not a good area to live for independent wrestling, especially in 2014, it was a really bad area to live for independent wrestling. But I moved back because that was home, and I had friends there. And uh, I was living in Denver, and I just I saw on Facebook that there was a wrestling show called Lucha Libre and Laughs happening about um, like four blocks away from my uh, four blocks away from where I lived, and uh, I went to check it out, and it was half comedy and half wrestling. And then uh, I remember the thing that stands out. Two things stand out most. Royce Isaacs was wearing a jock strap. He was wearing a cup. Like, the cup part, the hard part to protect you. I had never seen someone wear a cup in a match before. <laughs> and it looked so weird. And I think I went to the back and was like, hey, man, don't wear a cup. It looks really weird. And uh, there was a kid that was in a lucha match, a very bad lucha match. And he tried a shooting star press and just landed in a back bridge on the uh, – in a bridge on the uh, – on the mat. It was – I thought he was dead. It was the one of the worst botches I have ever seen. And those are the two things that stood out. But uh, I thought it seemed like a fun show. There weren't many people there. And Nick, the promoter, messaged me, uh, I think afterwards. He was like, hey, I saw that you were at Lucha Libre and laughs, I'd like to use you for the next show. And uh, so I did, and I had the most fun I've ever had at a wrestling show up to that point. And uh, I was hooked from there. And Nick, Nick, the story that I tell people about Nick as a promoter, uh, there was a time soon after this where I had run completely out of money, and I had mentioned to Nick that, like, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to buy groceries for the next couple of days. This is on a Wednesday before a Friday, maybe a Tuesday before a Friday show. Nick paid me that day so I could buy groceries for the show that was going to happen later, and I thought that really meant That's a cool. lot to me. and just shows what a good guy Nick is. Also, he hates when I tell that story, so I like to tell that story. <laughs>
1: But I mean, it's fair to say that Lucha Libre and Laughs has become a, a bit of a spiritual home for you. Right. To be fair, I mean, you you were there, love what, uh, 2015 and 2016. You had a fantastic run as uh, Sammy Six Guns, of course. You even had a tag title run with a uh, uh, Danger Dean as one half of the Denim Club, if I'm not mistaken. So love t- Danger t-
0: Dean.
1: Uh, t- tell us about that. Your kind of your first run with Lucha Libre and, Laughs. and would, you would know, would it be fair to say that you had a lot of fun with Triple L in them two years?
0: So much. It's. Triple L still is, that's the place where I learned to have fun, that's the place where I really, really uh, got a lot of my personality as a wrestler. Interacting with the comedians too, it was like, that taught me so much. Because just like the showmanship of the show, it's so entertainment based. And then the crowd is, I'd say the crowd is only like two thirds of a wrestling crowd. Yeah. And so, or two, uh, one third of a wrestling crowd, probably two thirds, they're just people that want to have a fun time. And so the reactions are so much more genuine. It's like you feel like more like you're at a a WWE type show where it's, uh, you, and especially the way Colorado wrestling was at the time, a lot of the shows, the only fans that came were family and friends. And so to be able to wrestle in front of people that weren't related to the wrestlers was like, was amazing. But uh, I started, I'm going to say this first I'm the most important person to Lucha Libre and Laughs that has never held the title, their heavyweight championship. I'm uh, probably more important than like three quarters of their heavyweight champions. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, so I started there. I wrestled uh, their champion, uh, Xander Creed. and We had a really fun match. I thought that you were supposed to tell jokes when you came out and you were not. They, you should leave that to the comedians. So my music plays, I walk out, I told two horrible jokes and then they had given me a t-shirt to throw into the crowd of one of the sponsors. And I thought it was taped up and it wasn't. And I didn't realize the crowd was really far away. And so I went to throw it into the crowd on a stage and it unraveled and didn't even make it to the crowd. So I told two really horrible jokes through his t-shirt that didn't even make it to the crowd and then had to wrestle. And uh, I still had a ton of fun there and just being in the back, like the environment, it was just something like I had never been in before where I'd been in this like very clean, sterile environment of like the WWE system. And so to go to Lucha Libre and last where it's just like, it was just like the locker room at the time especially was like small and dirty and it was just it was so much it was almost like watching the show shameless it was uh it was there was just so much personality to it and it was it, it had me hooked immediately and then nick liked me as a wrestler and he would do all kinds of stuff like uh we did stuff with uh these the comedians where we'd film like little shorts as sammy six guns and uh we'd go do stuff outside of just wrestling. And I love the creative part of it. And so Nick really got like the creative juices flowing for me and uh, my friend Danger Dean started wrestling there and we became a tag team, the Denim, cl- uh, the denim Club. And uh, so Danger Dean, my first, first go around in Colorado wrestling when I didn't get signed by WWE, I was trained by Pat Tanaka for about nine months and he would get me booked around Colorado. And Dean was like a kind of like a big brother to me where he had been around for a while and uh, we wrestled a few times. And he always took really good care of me. And so it was cool to be able to t- team up with Dean. And it was two guys having two guys who were friends in real life, having so much fun and putting on great matches. And uh, I really like I I love Lucha Libre and laughs. Uh, the, I think I still think one of the best matches that ever happened in Denver was uh, it was Sammy Six Guns versus Chris Hero. And I remember we were fighting in the crowd in that Lucha Libre and Laughs crowd where it's like there's beer spilled everywhere. You hear people cussing.
1: is the Oriental Theater.
0: Yeah, it is at the Oriental yeah. Theater. And for the first time, I realized I wasn't nervous at all. I was just having fun in the match. And I, like, I realized what it should feel like to like have a good wrestling match. And so, like, I really discovered. I think I discovered my. I discovered myself at Lucha Libre and Labs. Yeah, and, and just but don't uh, tell Nick Gossard I said <laughs> that. <laughs> but,
1: but, 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 I mean, you, your time as Sammy Six Guns it, it gave you an opportunity. To, it gave you an opportunity to delve uh, more into character work and to help bring out the fun side of your personality and to have fun with a less serious gimmick. So, whereas you know wwe nxt was more regimented yes you got the promo classes and you had a great personality there Lucha brain laughs and Six guns really brought out a great character yeah. didn't it
0: i feel like the training wheels came off where yeah. if you're gonna if, if when you're learning how to ride a bike if you don't have the training wheels you're gonna fall and it might hurt but you you get back up and so you you learn by experience and uh i was it and it pushed me out of my comfort zone and i was i'm so glad that i got that experience yeah
1: Yeah, indeed. Now, first of our uh, listener questions, and probably this this person might be more familiar to you than uh, to me. But uh, Hunter Gray, uh, Rocky Mountain Man Beast, he sent in a tweet uh, for this interview, saying, uh, "Your thoughts on the legacy of his doppelganger father, Sammy Six Gun Senior." So, tell us about Sammy Six Gun Senior, then. So,
0: Sammy Six Gun Senior, Sammy Six Gun Senior is awesome. He is a 50 year. He at the time, I think he was like a 50 year old man, very short, very bald, and a cartoon character of a man. Uh, he had rest, He was uh, wrestling before as the Polish Prince, and he talked in his entire life with this Polish accent. And so he was always walking around talking like this. But we found out later he's from Ohio. He's just really <laughs> weird. And uh, but we decide, I was like, hey, like if I'm Sammy and I made Sammy six guns jr. Cause I thought it would be like kind of a funny, like joke that like I could always in pro promos talk about my dad. That was like this big star in the territory before I was there. And, uh, but always not have him be a real person. And then I was like, Oh my God, this is where Sammy six guns senior makes his appearance. So he started, he would walk me to the ring at shows and he started walking dangerously handsome, uh, to the ring dangerously handsome in the denim club to the ring. Uh, And along with IDT, who was a comedian, uh, Ian Douglas Terry, who's hilarious. But uh, the Polish Prince, a.k.a. Sammy Sixgun Sr., he has a knack for as much as Nick Gossard and the other comedians and people who professionally communicate with an audience on a microphone. They know how bad he was at communicating, and they tried everything in their power to keep him from getting a microphone. And that man has such a skill for finding a live mic in a venue to just spout gibberish on we'd be wrestling and he would try and get on the mic and the mic would be shut off so we'd start the match the match is going on all of a sudden i hear the polish prince just going blah, 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 yelling his <laughs> gibberish on the microphone and it was just kind of a normal thing and uh yeah he is uh, quite the character and uh i'm really glad that i got to meet uh the polish prince and then my real life father passed away and i was like yeah let's stop joking around that you're my dad <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think it was Nick that actually sent me a video of uh, Sammy Six uh on a Colt Cabana video, yep. having to cut uh, Colt's promo for him, and that was yes. the most hilarious five-minute video I think I've ever seen.
0: That guy, uh, <laughs> he's he's a very funny character, but he has a heart of gold. He is uh, he's looked out for people when they uh, he's looked out for people when uh, other people haven't looked out for him. Also, like there have been wrestlers that have become like homeless and stuff, and he's always like been the first one to be like, Hey, you can stay at my place till you get on your feet. And he's a great guy. And like the main reason he got to do that character is because certain people cared about him so much and what a good guy he was. And uh, yeah, he was he was a treasure in Colorado wrestling for about 18 months. What a legend. What a legend. He he was the kind of fifty-year-old man that's going around and trying to get in fist fights with other fifty-year-old men. <laughs>
1: Oh, awesome. I've actually got a question from Nick, from Nick Gossett, the founder and promoter of Lucha Lee Chilly Brand Laughs and uh, the co-founder and promoter of Respect Women's Wrestling, both in Denver, of course. Now, Nick asks, uh, ask uh, Dak about taking an elbow drop from Bobcat Goldthwaite. So I know that Nick recalled this uh, conversation, <laughs> this, this story in his interview that we had a few weeks ago. But uh, tell us your version of events with uh, taking an elbow from Bobcat.
0: Okay, so I was wrestling Nick Dinsmore, and we're in Omaha at Crom Comedy Fest in Omaha. And uh, Bobcat Goldweight is on the card, and Nick and I put this match together, and he goes, Bobcat Goldweight's here. We got to use him. It just runs out of the locker room, and he's in full Eugene gear, and he tells Bobcat, he goes, and just one time, only one time he goes over with Bobcat Goldweight, who has never been involved in a professional wrestling match, tells him one time, here's what we're going to do you're running from the crowd and you're going to drop an elbow there was supposed to be two ref bumps so nick was supposed to get bumped and then another ref was supposed to come out and he was also supposed to get knocked out and then bobcat was supposed to come in the other ref was this kid who was brand new this was like his second show as a ref he's getting his taking his stuff off nick goes hey we need you for the main event and he's like what he's like yeah and so WWE superstar Eugene is telling this kid, who's brand new and so nervous, is so telling this kid, hey, put your gear back on. Also goes over the spot with him only one time. So this kid is just this kid's shaking in his, in his little ref shoes. And so he's waiting there watching out the curtain, waiting for his cue, waiting for his cue. Nick gets bumped. Bobcat just sees that ref bump and just runs straight in and call and counts the three. So it's fine. We go with it. We go with it which makes it the greatest rib for that poor kid. So that kid's sitting there, and he's nervous, 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 and then his time never <laughs> even came to run in. But then Bob, so Bobcat counts the three, and he gets up, and Nick goes, drop an elbow on him. And Bobcat's like, what? And he goes, yeah, just drop an elbow on him. And so Bobcat goes to drop an elbow on me and just falls on me, which is fine because he's tiny, and then he rolls over on top of me. So now I'm <laughs> on my back. And Bobcat Goldthwaite is face-to-face with me like this. And he goes, oh, oh, my God, are you so – oh, my God, are you all right? And I'm like, yes, our mouths are touching right now, Bobcat. (laughs) It was great.
1: Oh, what a fantastic story. And uh, yeah, look, so I've heard two sides, two versions of that story now, and it just gets better and better. But uh, you've been back to Triple L more recently, haven't you? you you've had uh, Asdaq, yeah. Dag uh, Draper, uh, instead of having Six Guns, of course. Uh, you've had matches with Filter, uh, Darren Corbin, and, of course, current at Triple L heavyweight champion, Anaya. Now, I've seen all three of those matches. Uh, first of all, I want to say Filter. He's a beast of a man, and he's probably oh, the God. only man on the Triple L roster that can match you kind of uh, size-wise, certainly your uh, Six six foot five frame, I think he's about the same, but um, take us back, you know, it's it, it, it been a couple of years since you last wrestled for Triple L and then yeah. going back and having these couple of matches. Um, it must have been a blast to, to go back to the Oriental Theatre, to go back to Triple L and have these three matches. Uh, tell us about your experience of going back for a second time.
0: So I was really nervous. I was nervous that people wouldn't remember me. Um, I it was weird because I had been a part of the national wrestling league and it had just gone out of business. And I felt like I had really poured almost everything into the NWL. And so when it ended, it w- I was pretty crushed and this was going to be like, this was the first, the most excited I've been for a show since NWL had closed. It was a few months later. And I had asked for filter. Uh, Nick, Nick is great about that. He works with the wrestlers so well. He asked me who I wanted to wrestle and I said, filter. And, uh, Filter's kind of like me, where he has an amateur wrestling background uh, in high school. Filter's a guy that I wish would get out there more, but he can't because he always go he's always going to jail, and so he can't leave the state a lot of times because he's a damn criminal. <laughs> but uh, he's 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 taller than me, and he moves so well for his size. And uh, I just thought it was a really I thought it was a really good match where Filter and I just uh, I think we did a like we did a good job of having this big man big man match. And you can hear how behind filter the crowd is at the end, too, where uh, there's just something about him where, you know, he doesn't have to say anything. You know, he could just kick somebody's ass. He's not the kind of guy that needs to have powerful words or anything. You can just tell by his demeanor that uh, he can kick a guy's ass. But uh, I thought it was cool because I think that match. I think that's one of those matches where I'd have matches with Chris Hero and a lot- I'd have matches with a lot of guys where I felt like a better wrestler walking back through the curtain than when I had uh, walked out. Yeah. And I feel like Filter was a better wrestler at the end of that match than he was at the start of that match. And so that felt good for me that someone improved while we wrestled. Yeah, and did. one of my favorite things from that, I think it was that night, there was a woman who met me at the, she took a picture and bought a t-shirt and then she she was a middle-aged woman and she thought that she was sending me direct messages on Twitter but she was just tweeting at me, trying to, like, meet up with me. And it was like, and it, it's not like I, like, gave her, like, it was like, yeah, let's meet up or anything. Just, she just said, hey, I want to see you again. And she was tweeting these things so everybody can see it. And it's like, are you at this <laughs> Apple, are you at the Applebee's in Glendale? And, like, you're really sexy. And all the wrestlers start retweeting it. And so it starts getting, it starts avalanching, getting these retweets. And this poor woman probably has, like, a family at home. <laughs> and she's... Pining after the mile high Magnum. <laughs> it was that was uh, that was pretty. Nick loved that.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And uh, you, you touched on uh, the National Wrestling League. Uh, you were a big part of their program from 2017, 2018. You had some great matches. A lot of the stars that passed through there had uh, uh, matches with yourself, such as Haku, Barbarian, Stevie Richards, Marty the Moth, of course. You even held the uh, National Wrestling League Kansas City Championship. And you were the, their champion for nine months, which was fantastic. So you had a, a really great run in those two years with the NWL. But um, it appears... It, it, it it to be another really important time in your career would you say
0: yeah that's when uh, sammy six guns grew up mm. sammy six guns grew up and became dak draper i uh i dropped a lot of the funny stuff i uh, dropped a lot of the, like the colorful outfits and the colorful uh gear and uh i definitely became more serious and you can see the evolution throughout nwl especially throughout 2017 as i be- as i just became better and better and better because nwl was they paid us to be full-time wrestlers. We had health insurance. They, uh, we, we had access to a ring all the time and a gym. So it was like, that's where I really could turn the corner and just focus myself a hundred percent on wrestling. Like I wasn't also working at a gym. I wasn't uh, also trying to like, trying to just have odd jobs. It was a, uh, I was a hundred percent focused and it helped me immensely. And just, I think it's so beneficial for young wrestlers to move. I always tell guys that they're like, I want to get better. I want more opportunities. they move. Because if, if you're around the people that saw you when you started, you're never going to get a real, a real gauge on where you're at because they're comparing you to when you were awful. And so if you go to somewhere where you don't know anybody, then it's all on your abilities. It's not who you know. And, uh, I think coming to Kansas city, going to Kansas city was, uh, it was so good for me there because it's sink or swim. And, uh, I came in and I put a lot of emphasis on my mic work and my character work and it, and it obviously it spoke for itself. I became the Kansas City champion, and became such a polarizing Kansas City champion. They were just like, oh no, that's the NWL championship now, because that's how it was. I was, it was, uh, it was definitely viewed as the most popular championship, and uh, I was the face of NWL, and it was such a good experience. And I definitely want to be the face of a company again because that's an awesome spot to be in. It's yeah. tiring. You don't have much time. You're always busy, but like, there's no feeling in the world like it.
1: Yeah, well, let's uh, talk about uh, ROH then, uh, Dak, because uh, you you did receive your your break with ROH in, uh, was it 2018, Uh, you had your first match? So so how did that kind of relationship, how did you get your first break? Uh, Who contacted who, and kind of, how did it all start for you and ROH?
0: So I always tell guys to move because like, you should move for opportunities. This was me moving to make my own opportunity. Uh, when the day NWL closed, we had a big show planned later that weekend and the owner came in on a Wednesday, we're having a meeting. and He goes, I'm shutting it down. The moment he said he was closing the closing NWL, I knew I had to move to the East coast. I knew I had to like, just for wrestling, the cities are closer. Um, geographically, it makes sense. If you're a pro wrestler, you should live some, you should live on a coast because just driving, getting on shows, there's more opportunity for work. And so I knew I was going to move to the East coast immediately. And, uh, I decided Baltimore because I wanted to Baltimore's close enough to like the South to the mid Atlantic, but also it's a drive. It's a, not a bad drive from new England, from New York, from Philly. It's uh it's close to everything. And when I was about to move to Baltimore, I found out that the ring of honor had just moved the ring of honor dojo to Baltimore. So I re I reached out to some of the coaches about just like, Hey, I'd like to come train just cause I wanted to make connections to get on some indie shows out. Here. Yeah. And I just wanted to like, meet. I didn't know, I didn't know anybody moving out there. It was a, a huge leap of faith. And so I started coming to the dojo and started training and uh, probably we started doing some dark matches. I started getting on a few dark matches if I went to ring of honor shows. And then they decided they were going to change up the dojo system completely, which was like, it was just kind of like, you can, you come to training when you want. It didn't cost anything. Uh, but uh, you had to be invited. And I talked to some of the coaches and they invited me, let me in and uh you maybe you would get an opportunity to do a dark match and then one day they're like hey we're gonna we're gonna sign some of you guys and so they pulled five of us aside and they offered us developmental contracts and so we got to be uh it was we were kind of on their schedule where we had training every day and uh film study and stuff like that it was kind of like a little mini wwe developmental and uh I made me remember what it was like to see other guys go up and other guys get on TV when you're just sitting there watching. And, uh, when I remember one day, uh, one of our producers was there and he's walking out and he says, top prospect tournaments coming back. And I was thinking, I was like, I wonder if I'll be in that. And, uh, I was like, I wonder if I'll even be in the top prospect tournament. And I was like thinking, Oh, he probably wouldn't have said anything if I had, a uh, if I hadn't been there and so I'll probably be in it. And then they asked me to be in it and they asked me about like the dates I was going to be in it. And I was like, Oh, I think I'm going to like win a match in this thing. And, uh, so it was, uh, and then as it went, I realized that, Oh, wow. You're, when I made the finals, I was like, Oh, wow. I could actually win the top prospect tournament. And it was just, it was really cool for me from a year before I had felt like I lost everything with NWL shutting down. Um, Like, with NWL, I thought I was just going to live in Kansas City and be the NWL champion forever. And uh, so I felt like I'd kind of lost everything, and it felt really good to kind of, like, rise from the ashes of that and realize that instead of that being the end of my wrestling journey, I used it as a springboard to bounce forward. And now I'm looking to capitalize on that as much as I can.
1: Indeed. And and it was the the ROH Top Prospect Tournament that gave you your much-deserved push and added recognition. So tell us, you know how you know after winning that tournament the top prospect tournament how did you did you feel a certain amount of justification for all of the hard work on the indies in the years before since um leaving wwe did you feel justified and did you feel that you you were really on an upward trajectory
0: i feel like i'm on an upward trajectory but i don't feel like it's justified yet and i'll probably never feel like it's justified i think because i think the kind of person that i am is that you always want to get the next thing yeah like i get to one goal and it's like well okay well i I won the top prospect tournament but i didn't win my tv title match so how do i get that and i'm sure if i win the tv title i'm gonna want the world title it's but i think that's a trait of successful people where you're always looking for that next opportunity um maybe someday i'll be the most famous wrestler in the world and uh i will feel like it was like it was all justified and it was all worth it but I think I'll probably always be able to like set up new goals in my head that make me think that I have to achieve these goals in order to validate my past. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing that motivates me It's a big, it's definitely a big thing that motivates me that I, uh, that I, I feel like everything that I've done and all the sacrifices I've made are for nothing. If I just don't keep progressing up the ladder in wrestling.
1: That's the way it should be. That's exactly the way it should be. So I've got a couple more listener questions then. So a good friend of the show, Kurt Johansson, has sent us a couple of questions. And the first one is uh, about the, the Top Prospect Tournament. So having won the Top Prospect Tournament, uh, a tournament that has propelled the career of yourselves and so many before you, who would you like to be given an opportunity in the next tournament, maybe from the independents?
0: I would love, ooh, in the next, oh man, there's so many guys I'd like to, I would like the name and from the independence, there's a guy, there are a lot of guys you're here talked about a lot. This is a guy that I never see on lists. And part of it is because he has a family now. And so he doesn't get out as much as he should, but there's a guy named Devin Thomas that I've had in NWL. His name was Thor Terrio. He's an Omaha guy and he is so good. And, uh, he's, he's so easy to put a match together with. He reminds me of, uh, he reminds me of like if Bret Hart did a little bit more flying around, and if Bret Hart just like a 2020 Bret Hart, where it's he just he he can work with anybody, he can have great matches with anybody, and uh, the biggest thing he's 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 fun to wrestle, and I think Devin Thomas is a guy, and I and I point him out specifically because I think the ratio of how much he's known versus how much he should be known is completely off.
1: Great so yeah,
0: it would be Devin Thomas. Also, Jake Durden. Jake Durden is a, uh, he's a Midwest guy. He's, six, he's like six foot eight. He looks like Bruiser Brody. And he is so, I don't know how more people don't know of Jake Durden.
1: I'm gonna look him up. I'm definitely gonna look him up. But uh, second question from Kurt. Uh, so having started your career in WWE, upon your departure from that company, did you ever consider stepping away from pro wrestling altogether?
0: No, never. I, uh, I remember the, at my WWE tryout, at my first tryout, Norman Smiley showed one transition and then had me try it, and I was hooked. I knew this is what I want. I knew this is exactly what I wanted to do, and n- not even a second. When I, when I got released, it was just like when, when I got to the performance center the day that I got released, and they said, hey, uh, before training, swing by the office. I, my thought was like, well, I'll be on the indies now. It was, I never even, I've never thought about stepping away from wrestling.
1: Cool. And I've got a question from uh, that guy at Dave HDN. I don't know if you know him, but uh, he says, ask uh, Dak about wrestling, a pro wrestling Hall of Fame inductee in what turned out to be his final match. Uh, do you know what he's referring to there? He's got ha- hashtag rest in peace, Lord Littlebrook. So uh, has that got oh, any recollection for you there? It wasn't Lord
0: Littlebrook. It was uh, Lord Littlebrook's son.
1: Bobby. Ah, okay. Um,
0: yeah. I wrestled Bobby. Uh, we did a match where it was Dak Draper when I was the NWL champion, it was Dak Draper takes on all comers. And, uh, and Bobby is a, uh, he's a smaller wrestler. And so I, I called it the Dak Draper dreams come true challenge. And I said, this is going to be the biggest, the, this is the biggest dream that I've, uh, ever the biggest wish I've ever granted. And I wrestled Bobby and something about Bobby. He, uh, he does he did all like his showmanship was so good he had like he had a small robe on and uh he came out and it was he, he came out and he like hit all his poses really well and it was like his hair swing was great and uh it was it was fun it was a it was a comedy match uh six foot five guy versus three foot five guy um, but uh it was really i i had actually ridden with uh some little people and trained with them a little bit uh through pat tanaka but it was the first time i'd ever wrestled a little person in a match and uh i thought it was a great challenge i thought it was fun i thought we had some really good like little spots that we got in it was uh it was an experience it was a good experience awesome i think it's one of the things that made nwl special too yeah definitely and unfortunately yeah that was his last match he passed he passed away a few months later and so he was i thought he was a great guy
1: yeah awesome i've got another question from a friend of the show mags and mags asks uh, a popular mindset around the internet wrestling uh community is that being part of the wwe in any way shape or form adds value to the wrestler in your experience is that true or is it like a milestone around your neck
0: i think the best thing that i did was trying to uh was trying to stop promoting that i used to be an so much um, when I was in, when I first came, when I first was released, I feel like every poster I was on was former NXT, former NXT yeah. star uh, now Sam, now known as Sammy Six Guns, formerly Travis Tyler. And I started to tell promoters not to do that because I almost wanted people to forget that Travis Tyler existed. And And I thought that's one of the best things I did because I didn't want to be known as someone who failed somewhere. I want to be known as someone who's like, who's still on the rise and uh i do think i was i think nxt was super beneficial fundamentals wise i think about the fundamentals that i've learned and uh just the base that you have the foundation that i have i couldn't have learned that anywhere else in the time that i learned it and uh that's what i think the biggest benefit was i don't think the name especially the way that wrestling is now i don't think being associated with wwe is uh it's a feather in your cap. I have a lot of fun stories about like, oh yeah, well when Braun Strowman used to cut promos, the eyes were too, br- the lights were too bright, so he used to make him turn the lights down because he'd be squinting and stuff like that. Like, I don't know, I have fun like a few fun stories like that. But uh, otherwise, I think the best thing is just it helped me have a really good foundation and helped me learn from a ton of Hall of Famers. Yeah.
1: Great answer. And final listener question from a Get Show Comedy Wrestling Podcast. Uh, They've asked a few questions in the past and uh, their question for you, Dak, is uh, what's your um, go to place to eat when you come back home to Colorado? So do you have a favorite restaurant when you come back home?
0: So when I go back to Colorado for Lucha (laughs) Libre and Laughs now, usually after a show, it's going to be Gossert, Ian Douglas Terry. Uh. Filter Anaya, a bunch of the guys, Hunter Gray, those guys. We're gonna go to McCoy's. McCoy's is this. It's like, I think it's called McCoy's Steakhouse. Maybe it is not a steakhouse. It's if it's like if a Waffle House had a full bar. It is a wonderful place. Like it is a. Uh, it's you can go there and just it's we call we joke that it's the Denver Ribera. It's like like Ribera Steakhouse in Denver, where it's just like. If you if you wrestle for Lucha Libre and laughs, we're going to McCoy's after the show, and I'm gonna get an open-faced uh, pot roast sandwich and uh, two pieces of pie, and uh, it's if if you haven't wrestled in Denver until you've eaten at McCoy's after the show, that's awesome. what I'm gonna say.
1: Awesome, and I hope that uh, Nick picks up the tab. Um, at the end of each meal, but uh, maybe not. never does. <laughs> we have to pay him a tax. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but, uh, Dak, that's pretty much the end of our uh, interview, this uh, very special celebratory 150th episode of Wrestling with Jono's podcast. But before we say goodbye, it's an opportunity for you to throw out your social media handles. Where can we find you? Reach out to you, say hi, and we'll, we'll learn more about Dak Draper on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, so, so or any merch you might have to, uh, to plug. But uh, plug away. The floor is yours, my friend.
0: Um, just follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Mile High Magnum, all one word. And uh, my uh, Pro Wrestling tea store is linked there. I don't remember the, the address off the top of my head. So, yeah, follow Mile High Magnum. I post a ton of shirtless pictures and really dumb stuff. So if you enjoy uh, self-deprecating humor in your life, that's the page for you to
1: follow. <laughs> and we'll make sure that all of them uh, links are added to the description of this podcast. So If you listen to this uh, or watching on YouTube, just click into the description and all the links are there. And we'll also add the link to your YouTube channel as well, because there's uh, lots of cool content on there. But Dak, uh, uh, I wish you nothing but the best in your Ring of Honor career. When things do finally get back up and running, I truly hope that you get the opportunities and the success that you deserve with Ring of Honor, my friend. You know, uh, you've been a fantastic guest on our very special 150th episode.
0: Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. It's been a fun time.